The reading is the parable of the sower from Mark chapter 4. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore of the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown in good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what is sown. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church. Only let me add my welcome to Hendra's. I've been encouraging you over the last few weeks to see each of the paragraphs in Mark's gospel as like little bits of evidence. And I've been asking you to kind of put your detective hats on and to try and explore the evidence and see what the evidence is saying. Some of our kids today have got a little detective picture that they're colouring in. I want that to be a reminder for us that Mark wants us to examine the evidence in front of us and to see what that evidence reveals. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that evidence pointing to who Jesus is. Who is that? The Messiah and the Son of God. Last week, if you were here with us, we saw the evidence in the passage pointing towards the authority of Jesus. We saw that he had authority to heal sickness but perhaps even more importantly we saw that he had the authority to forgive sins now this week we've skipped ahead a little bit in mark's gospel we're now in chapter four and because we've skipped a few things we've we've missed a few things as well Uh, one of the things that we've skipped over which is important for us today is the mounting opposition to jesus now we've already seen last week 
uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees grumbling about Jesus. Remember, he was eating with Levi and the sinners. But it's not just them who are grumbling about Jesus. By the time we get to chapter 4, this opposition is getting worse. It seems to be more widespread. If you've got a Bible nearby, grab one if you can and and turn with me to to Mark chapter 3. We skipped over this, so come with me to Mark chapter 3 verse 20. I think it's going to be up on the screen as well. Let me show you just a little bit of this opposition. This is what Mark chapter 3 verse 20 says. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Here we have his own family trying to get Jesus and and put him back in his box. And it's not just his family. By this stage, the the teachers of the law are beginning to think he's evil. Look what it says in in verse 22 of chapter 3. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, if you've got your detective hats on, which I've been encouraging you to do, if you've been considering the evidence that Mark's been putting before us, by chapter 4, I reckon a question will be starting to emerge in your mind somewhere. Um, Something like this. If Jesus is able to cast out the demons, and if he's able to heal the sick, why would anybody oppose him? If he's really so incredible doing these amazing things like healing the sick and casting out demons, why are some people opposed to Jesus? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I reckon that's why Mark puts chapter 4 in its place in his gospel. He's backing up his evidence here by helping us to see why some people oppose Jesus and others become his followers. And Mark is going to show us that when it comes to Jesus' words, our hearts matter. When it comes to Jesus' words, our hearts matter. And something else about chapter 4 that I I hope you notice as we've been working our way through these uh, early chapters in Mark's Gospel, the style of writing's changed a little bit here as well. In chapter 4, Mark records for us something that Jesus said. He's actually narrating, it seems, almost verbatim, word for word, a whole slab of text in which it's just Jesus speaking. And that's quite unusual in Mark's Gospel. A few years ago, those red-letter Bibles were quite popular. Do you remember those red-letter Bibles? The red letters were the words that Jesus spoke, and they, um, the publishers of those Bibles put those words in, in red text. Our, our Bibles today don't do that. Um, But if they did, chapter 4 would be mostly a red-letter chapter in Mark's Gospel. And that's a bit unusual in Mark's Gospel. Now, there are three clear sections in the parable of the sower. If you've got a leaflet with you today, you'll see those three clear sections. Uh, The first of our sections is in verses 1 to 9, which is where Jesus speaks the parable. In verses 10 to 13... But a little bit different, in, in those verses, Jesus is, uh, tells us why he's speaking to the crowds using parables. And then in verses 14 to 20, Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. And we're going to work our way through each of those sections today. You can follow along in your leaflet if that's helpful. As I said before, please, if you've got questions, text them in. Hendre's going to come and answer them in a minute. All right, come with me to the start of chapter 4. 
It's coming in the start of chapter 4 of Mark. We learn in verse 1 that the crowds listening to Jesus have now become so large that Jesus needs to get into a boat and move out onto the water so the people can gather on the shoreline and hear what he has to say. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus taught many things by parables, many things. Mark's chosen to tell us this bit. There are far more parables. You can go to some of the other Gospels to see these. But in chapter 4, Mark tells us the parable of the sower. And that starts in verse 3. Now, for those people living in an agrarian society, it must have been a pretty familiar story. The the parable is about a a farmer sowing seed. I'm not going to read it for you because I think it's a familiar story. But as the farmer scatters the seed, it falls into different places. Some seed falls on the path. Some falls in rocky places. Some falls among thorns. And some falls in good soil. Now, now presumably, Jesus is not trying to say here anything about the proportions. He's not saying that seed equally falls in the path or in rocky places. No, surely a farmer would toss most of the seed into good soil. Jesus is not here talking about the proportions. He's simply illustrating the reality that many of the people would have known from experience, and that is that when a sower sows seed, some of the seed falls on productive soil and some does not. The soil might not be productive because it's a, a hard-formed path or it might be, be too rocky or too thorny. Now, for most of us living in the city, the closest we get to farming is watching like Gardening Australia on Friday night, right? But even for us, even for us who are not particularly familiar with farming practices, I, I think this parable's fairly easy for us to visualise, Right? If there's one surprising bit in the parable, it's probably at the end to do with the productivity of the soil and the returns. Here Jesus speaks about a productive crop multiplying and producing 30, 60 or even 100 times what was sown. Today, uh, in Australia, I have it from from good authority, from a man who knows these things, uh, with our modern tractors and our fertilisers and our sprays and those sorts of things, Australian farmers might expect a grain yield of 30 to 40 times. A commentator I read said that in ancient Israel, before the invention of fertilisers and tractors and so on, the return might have been more like 7 to 10 times what was sown. That means a return of 30 times or 60 times is, is pretty amazing. And a return of 100 times, well, perhaps not unheard of, seems to be bordering on being unnatural. And there might be an allusion here back to Genesis 26 and the story of Isaac. There we read that Isaac planted crops in that same year, reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. An unnaturally large harvest. That's perhaps the only bit in the parable that we don't visualize so well as city folk today. Well, by the time we get to verse 10 in the parable, Jesus has moved on. Presumably he's no longer in the boat And rather, he's with his 12 disciples and what sounds like just a few others. He was with a big crowd. Now he's alone, apart from the 12 disciples and a few others. And he's asked about the parables. Why does he speak in parables? Give that a little bit of a thought yourself. Why do you think Jesus speaks in parables? Now, many of us would know some of the parables very well. The idea of being a good Samaritan, 
that's kind of crept into our everyday language, hasn't it? Parables have in the past been favourites for use in Sunday school. But I want to suggest to you today that parables are not just for kids, and they might not even be easy to understand. Parables actually might be quite tricky. Now, you might think that parables are often just morality lessons, like be like the Good Samaritan. This morning, I want you to think that maybe they're more nuanced and more complex than that. In fact, I want to suggest that parables are actually supposed to be tricky. That's their whole point. They're supposed to be difficult because they're designed to get us to stop what we're doing and to really think about what we've just heard. Parables are designed to make us think. A commentator I read this week described parables as being a bit like those political cartoons that you sometimes see in newspapers. Have you ever seen one of those political cartoons? You know, they normally have like exaggerated facial features and that sort of stuff. And at first glance, when you see one of those political uh, cartoons, they make you smile because they're a little bit funny. And then as you look a bit more deeply at the, the cartoon, you might begin to discover the irony or the point that the cartoonist is making, and, and hopefully it might even unsettle you a little bit. Now, given our, our series on Mark, I saw a, a very apt political cartoon this week. I haven't put it on the screen for political reasons. You can Google it if you want. It was published in the West Australian newspaper this week, and it depicts Andrew Thorburn. You heard about him in the news this week, I imagine. He was running away from a storm cloud and he had discarded his Essendon scarf into the background and there was a quote on the political cartoon from Mark 14.52 which says he fled naked leaving his garment behind. Right? Political cartoon designed to make you pause, stop and think. Parables are supposed to do the same thing. They're designed to make us think. Now, we might not necessarily agree with the content, but we're to think. Jesus speaks to the twelve and a few others. Presumably, they're already followers of Jesus. They perhaps know him as the Messiah, even if they still don't fully understand what they mean. that means. And Jesus says, to those on the outside, he speaks in parables so that they will not understand. And Jesus uses the words of Isaiah, that great prophet who spoke of the judgment that was to come. And Isaiah, knowing what was to come, pleaded with the people to turn and yet they would not listen to him. Parables are not really illustrations, are they? Illustrations, I think, are designed just to make a concept easier to grasp. Parables aren't so simple, they might even obscure what Jesus is saying. They're designed to make us stop, think, and listen. Ultimately, what matters is listening and living out what Jesus wants us to do. What matters is responding by hearing and changing our hearts. Perhaps that's why Jesus tells the crowd to listen at both the start and the end of the parable. He wants us to listen. Now, what does this particular parable then mean? What is this particular parable all about? Well, 
Mark helps us with this particular parable by going on to give us Jesus' explanation, his explanation that he spoke to the 12 disciples and the others who were with him when he was alone. And we see that in verses 13 to 20 of Mark chapter 4. Now, when Jesus told the parable, it seemed the subject of the parable was the sower, but here in his explanation section, the subject now seems to be the hearers of the word and how they might respond to the word of God. In verses 13 to 20, Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of the parable. Now, I know many of you will have read this passage in the Bible before, so I wonder, how does this explanation sit with you? When Patsy read it to you, does it sit with you well, or do you think he's just kind of saying the same thing again, as he initially said? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think he's trying to link the agricultural aspects of this parable to the human heart. Here are the core aspects of Jesus' explanation. Like a farmer, God sows his word widely. We've seen that already in Mark's Gospel, haven't we? People have been coming from all over to listen to Jesus. It's not just his disciples who listen in, but people line the banks of the shore. And in and through Jesus, the word of God is being sown widely. Now, I've got a diagram on the screen behind me that Joe's going to put up for me, if that's okay. Um, And in this diagram, you can see the sower at the top of the diagram and the different types of soil. I hope this is helpful for you as you see how Jesus links the agricultural aspects of the parable to the human heart. So there are four things that might happen to the human heart when confronted with the Word of God. Three of those things relate to hearts that turn away from God. You might say that in those cases, people's hearts are hardened to the Word of God. Jesus explains how an agricultural experience that all the people understand is linked to something that's a little bit more tricky, how our hearts work. On the diagram, part of which I borrowed from Craig Blomberg, I've added what I think are are the human heart responses to each of the types of soil. Before we dig into this, I think it's important for us just to remember the context for a sec. Why is Jesus telling us this parable? Why has Mark put it here in chapter 4? Because not everybody is responding to the Word of God positively. Not everybody is responding to Jesus positively. Some are standing in opposition to him. Why? That's Mark's question for us. Why? Three reasons Mark gives us. You see them on the screen there. Like seed on a path, some people hear the word and then they're snatched away by Satan. Jesus doesn't explain how this happened, but I take it that there are some people who never respond positively to Jesus, who never respond positively to God's word. Their hearts are hard. They never even consider the gospel as the word of God. You may have met some of those people in your life. The second category of people hear the word of God, but become hardened in their hearts and reject God when faced with persecution. Now, I reckon in Australia, we've been pretty fortunate not to have this, for this not to be much of a problem for us in our everyday life. Until just this week, it's fairly irregular that we hear of the persecution of a Christian person for their faith in Jesus. But this week in Victoria, and I'm not necessarily across all the facts with this, but it looks like Andrew Thorburn was forced out of his dream job because his heart belonged to Jesus. 
Now, perhaps this is far from the greatest persecution that a Christian's ever faced, right? A long way from the greatest persecution. But I still reckon it hurt. And it's happening in our country, happened last week. The third aspect of the heart is all to do with the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. And Jesus compares this to the way in which a seed might grow up among thorns. And it's this one that I reckon is probably the most pertinent, the biggest challenge for you and I living in our time and in our place. Many of you know that before I was a pastor, I was an engineer. I studied with a great group of other engineering students. One of them actually happens to be here this morning. Let me tell you a little bit about my heart. Occasionally on Facebook, I see what some of my engineering friends are up to and what they've done with their engineering education. Some of them have become incredibly successful as engineers and they've risen to very lofty heights in the world. And I've got to watch my heart when I see what they're doing. Because I'm never going to be the president of some international company. Now truly in the cold hard light of day, I'm very happy to stand before you being a pastor, not being an engineer. I love what I do. I have a terrific job and I'm very thankful for it. Yet when it's not in the cold, hard light of day, when I'm tired or when things are difficult and I turn to Facebook and I see how senior, how amazing these jobs are that some of my colleagues have done, I wonder what would it have been like as an engineer? Could I have been a big boss of a multinational company? Now that's my heart. I wonder what it is for you. What threatens the state of your heart? Is it about the worries of life? Meredith had a very much-loved grandma. She's now with Jesus. But she was famous in our wider family for being the one who worried. She worried about every possible thing. Are worries threatening your heart? Or is it for you the deceitfulness of wealth? Can you see what Jesus is doing here in his explanation? He's linking an everyday agricultural reality that people would have been familiar with, seeds struggling to grow up because it's surrounded by thorns, to the reality of the state of our hearts. And explaining why some reject the word of God. Now I want to pause here for a moment and just say, if you're feeling these things this morning, if if it feels like the state of your heart is perhaps not what it should be, if you're feeling that before God, if you're feeling a bit like your heart's in the wrong spot, let me just pause and just say, how do you deal with that? Let me point you to Jesus. Do you know who changes our hearts? It's Jesus. Jesus changes hearts. That's what Mark's Gospel will go on to say. That Jesus is the one who opens our eyes. He's the one that can work in our hearts. If you feel like your heart's not in the right spot this morning, ask Jesus to be at work in your heart. Ask him to open your eyes, to give you a sense of freshness about who he is. Don't go away not doing that today if you don't feel like your heart's in the right spot. Mark has been giving us through the first four chapters of his gospel, evidence about who Jesus is. It's compelling evidence. 
even those, but, but yet, even those who see these things with their own eyes, some of them reject Jesus. Even his own family at this point in the story anyway, don't seem to be on Jesus' team. Mark's question for us is why? And the answer he gives us through this parable is because we don't all have soft hearts. Fortunately though, some do. Some do respond legitimately to the word of God by hearing and by bearing fruit. And before I wrap up this morning, I just want us to spend a few minutes thinking, what does it mean then to to bear fruit? And I want to answer that by directing you to come to... uh, Matthew chapter 7. So turn there in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, where at another parable in the Bible, we're looking at verses 15 to 20 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus has been speaking here in chapter 7 about fruit. And then in verse 24, we read this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, The winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a crash. Some in the parable of the sower land in good soil. They hear the word and respond by putting them into practice. What does it mean to bear good fruit? To hear God's words and to put them into practice. Place your faith in Jesus. Turn to him in repentance. Remember again the context of this this parable. Where does it come in Mark's gospel? Some are turning away from Jesus. Why? Because their hearts aren't in the right place. But many do respond in the right way. Many do bear fruit. They listen to God, they respond, and they put his words into practice. I want to encourage you today by reminding you that this is the very start of the story of God at work in the world, when we're reading it in Mark chapter 4. Today, there are more than 2 billion people alive who call Jesus their Lord and Saviour. That's a lot of seed on good soil in our world today. God is at work and is working powerfully in our world. Before we finish up today, I think it would be amiss of me not to take a few moments to ask us all just to think about the state of our hearts today. How are you responding to the words of Jesus at the moment? By that I mean, I don't so much mean about how you're feeling about this particular passage today, but more, how are your hearts more generally? Are you feeling the pressures and the persecution of the world? Are you experiencing the deceitfulness of wealth? Or are you being consumed by the worries of the world? 